These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen, who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. And I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten that they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, And Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name, behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel, they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name, Lying words that I did not command them, I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. To Shemaiah of Nehalem you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah the son of Messiah, a priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest, 
to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth who is prophesying to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Nehalem, Because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him, and has made you trust in a lie, therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehalem and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. Let's read that far in God's word. Our, our previous two chapters, chapters 27 and 28, we saw a verbal showdown between two, the true prophet and the false prophet, primarily over the idea of how long the exile would be. The true prophet Jeremiah prophesied the word of the Lord that the exile would last 70 years and then God would bring them home. Whereas the false prophet prophesied the exile would be about two years and then they would come home soon. So here, now we have a showdown in written form, letters being sent back and forth from the true prophet to the false ones. And the main point, as you'll see if you're looking at your bulletin outline, like the ancient exiles, Christians today are exiles on earth, called to accept our long-term assignment to bless our country before we go home to heaven. So drawing that lesson for us. First, we'll study the passage and then see how that applies to us through Christ. First, exiles long-term, Ample time to be a blessing. Second, exile will end, so never give up hope. And third, even in exile, watch out for false teachers. So we start in point one, verse one. Exile is long-term, enough time to be a blessing. Verse one, the chapter is introduced as a letter from Jeremiah, who is located in Jerusalem. Verse two, the recipients of the letter were those who had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon It was the year 597 B.C., we know, including King Jehoiachin and his mother and other royal officials and skilled craftsmen. Verse 3, this letter was carried by two royal messengers. The government messengers were sent by Jerusalem's King Zedekiah with a message to Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar. You know how emissaries go from one country to another constantly, and that's their job. Well, they were carrying official business documents, they were also willing to carry a spiritual message written down from Jeremiah to the exiles. So that's how it got there in the official emissary's mailbag. Verse 4, what did the letter say? First, and surprisingly, God reminded the exiles that it was God who sent them in the exile. This was all a spiritual matter. You sinned, You didn't listen to my prophet Jeremiah for 20 plus years. I said exile was coming. Exile came. Just don't forget that now that you're in exile. Surprisingly, God starts the letter that way. Nebuchadnezzar only served, you see, as a tool in God's hand. It wasn't all about Nebuchadnezzar and his desire for world domination. That's true, but it's not governed by that. It's governed by our God. This exile was from God's hand as judgment for their sins. That needs to be clear right off the top. That's the first thing in the letter, verse 4. Verse 5, what else does the letter say? God told the exiles to change their perspective. 
You're not victims and refugees in Babylon. You are God-sent residents in Babylon now. In other words, you shouldn't view your situation in a foreign prison as something bad happening to you. You should view it as a calling from God, get used to living there in Babylon, and make the best of it. Really? Exactly how are we supposed to make the best of having been attacked, dragged off to another country, and now living as prisoners of war? How do you recommend that we make the best of it? Well, the letter went on to specify exactly how they would do that. Building houses, planting gardens, marrying, building families. In other words, go on with life under God as usual. In verse 6, God even commanded that their sons and their daughters should marry and bear them grandchildren in exile. They were not to hold back. They were not to shrivel up. They were rather to numerically increase while they're in Babylon. And all of these statements reinforce, don't they, the duration of the exile. It's going to be a while. In fact, it's literally multi-generational because it takes 70 years before they're coming back. God is siding, of course, on the side of his true prophets who are saying 70 years because they're sent by him and not on the side of the false prophets who are saying two years because they were not sent by God. Verse 7, even more striking, is God's command to pray for the peace and prosperity of the enemy city where they now live as prisoners of war. Don't you admit that it would be hard for them to pray blessings down from the God of Israel for their enemies in Babylon who had just attacked their city and brought themselves away as hostages? Don't you think that's a tall order to ask them to pray that? Recognize what's being asked of them here in verse 7. And it's fascinating that God goes on to explain the logic to help them here in verse 7 to see things correctly. Listen, blessing the enemy city is in your best interests too. Since you're prisoners within it, right? As Babylon prospers, so will the exiles. What are you going to do? Ask for lightning bolts from heaven to burn up Babylon while you're living in it, right? Don't ask God for sinking the ship of your community while you're on the ship. It only makes sense. So he explains mercifully in verse 7 how they should be thinking. Verses 8 and 9, God directly warned the exiles against the fraudulent hope offered by the false prophets that it was all going to soon be over. These false prophets were not speaking the Lord's message, we learn in verses 8 and 9, but were reporting dreams that they dreamt. Their dream was that they would soon return to Jerusalem. All of that is a lie. God did not send those dreams. He did not send those prophets. Those words will not come true. Again, Their stay was not temporary. They're told to settle in and make the best of it. Better than that, they're told to be a blessing to their captors, which is more towards how we will apply this. Moving on then to point two, exile will end, so never give up hope, verses 10 through 14. Those who are in our church and have been in the study with me and are observant will remember that on April 17, Resurrection Sunday, I did in fact preach from these verses, 10 through 14. So rather than go all into them now, I'll briefly summarize these verses because our goal is to cover the whole chapter and see it in its context today. Verse 10 struck a new tone. Uh, The tone changed from present judgment 
in exile to future blessing during exile and then far future blessing of restoration after exile and the duration of judgment, again specified, 70 years, not two, not 190, not 900, 70 years, it's specified. After that exact period of time, or it could be an estimate, but around 70 years, God would visit the exiles and bring them back to their homeland. We're told that in so many words. It was a period of time that had been set as an ending point. God gave them a fixed terminus. God is not abandoning his people in Babylon as detainees in some prison indefinitely. No, no, no. It's going to end. Just like he had been saying for decades it's going to happen, he says now it is going to end. This is a God who can be trusted. That is the source of their hope. Verse 11, one of the most famous verses in all the book of Jeremiah, we already said in context in a previous message, I'll say it again now, we well know that God has plans for his people. We love providence. We love sovereignty. This is who our God is. He's in control of the entire world in order to bless us. God has settled and fixed plans for us. If you would like, you could get a plaque that says this verse and hang it in your home because they're readily available. This is a, probably the most common verse uh, that there is on plaques and bookmarks and so on. Well, should be. But please understand it in its context. The exiles themselves who received these words within this letter would not all live the whole 70 years. They would not all live and long enough to witness the changeover back from judgment to redemption, but they would get started and then their children or grandchildren would live to see more. Understand that as you look at your plaque or the magnet on your refrigerator. Understand the context here that God has plans and they're not according to my wonderful jolly ideas. They're according to God's wonderful plan for holiness for his people, for rescue and salvation and grace for his people. Verse 12, the turnaround came when the people finally repented. If we didn't get the message of repentance from the book of Jeremiah, we're really not paying attention at all. Repentance, repentance, repentance. And finally, verse 12 starts to express, as a whole new tone breaks out in our chapter 29, what happens after people repent is the blessings flow. Consistent with the repentance message of the first 28 chapters of Jeremiah, the principle here is this. God gives the gift of repentance first, then God gives the gift of restoration. And as I explain in the other sermon, verses 10 through 14, the verses are motivating then exile, one particular exile, a young man, you actually know him, you know his name, his name is Daniel. He was a young boy when he was brought out as an exile, and he became a prophet of God. He later prayed the prayer of repentance in Daniel chapter 9, a wonderful prayer, closer to the end of the 70 years of exile. He gave voice to the repentance that God had been calling for all along. The exiles during exile must repent of their sins and seek God. He's a holy God, and he demands that sinners turn from their sins and come to him for salvation and cleansing. And when God gave them the grace to seek him, verses 13 and 14 promised that God would then allow himself to be found by them and that God would restore them. 
He would bring them home. And the point of all this for our message today is, therefore, we never give up hope. We never give up hope. No matter how dark, no matter how bleak, we have these promises of our God undergirding them all as our creator and as our redeemer. So we need never give up hope. We move to our third point then. Even in exile, we have to watch out for false teachers. They're like cockroaches. They show up even in your cottage. They show up in your hotel room. They show up in your home. They're in the garage. They're in the shed. It's everywhere. Where are these false teachers? They even find their way to exile. Verses 15 to 32, we now have a repeat treatment of the previous chapter's problem of false teachers. Verse 15, even in exile in Babylon, there's false teachers. The people of God in exile were falling for it falling for false hope from false prophets. It was impacting them. And so in verse 16, it became necessary for the Lord to respond. In verses 17 and 18, in God's response, he used two phrases of destruction. You'll love them. Two phrases of destruction often repeated by true prophets. The first phrase, sword, famine, and pestilence. Uh, The second phrase, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach. Why? Because God had warned the people Yet in verse 19, reported status update, the people in Jerusalem still wouldn't listen. Do you understand what's happening? We've already had the first wave of deportation. There are people now in exile, and the people in Jerusalem still would not repent and listen. That's where we are. And so far, God gave a general reaction to the false prophets in Babylon, but now in verse 20, God becomes more specific by saying the exiles should hear. The exiles should listen up. Verse 21, God named two of the false prophets by name. One named Ahab, I know what you're thinking. Same name as a famous king in the Bible, but a different person entirely, so put that to rest. And the other false prophet here named Zedekiah, I know what you're thinking. Same name as a current king. Again, this is a different person, you can put that thought to rest. So these two false prophets happen to be named Ahab and Zedekiah, okay? So both of these false prophets are telling a lie in God's name. As a result, God would deliver these two false prophets into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who would strike them down. I get a a little bit of um, humor out of this, that the justice here was so strong that these two false prophets had just a response from God so strong that it became a famous, developed, regular statement of cursing associated with this in verse 22, where the Lord will make you like them whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Now, we like the word roasting, especially when we're thinking about grilling and that sort of stuff on a weekend like this. But this was not a nice sort of roasting, you realize. It was burning people alive in a fiery furnace, as we remember from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. And this is where I get... The enjoyment out of it, not what I just said, but what's coming. Here in Jeremiah 29, the same God who, as you well know from your childhood Bible stories, prevented Nebuchadnezzar's fire, seven times extra heated, from harming Daniel or his three friends, would allow that same Nebuchadnezzar, and quite possibly even the very same furnace, to end the lives of these two false prophets that we've just named by name. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was always unwittingly fulfilling God's will. Nebuchadnezzar was God's little puppet, God's little servant, God's little king, because God is the king over kings. And our God is a differentiating God. Some need to be burned up. 
Some need to be not even singed, not even smelling like smoke. That's our God. He's got a heaven and a hell. Verse 23, God said these two false prophets had done an outrageous thing in Israel. Uh Uh-oh. Namely, he actually goes ahead and names them for us, these crimes. Adultery, which is a break the seventh commandment, as you know. Also, they spoke in God's name when not told to do so, breaking the third commandment. And also, lying words, which is break the ninth commandment. God ordered immediate punishment. God used Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace to accomplish it. We move on to our reply letter, verses 24 to 28. A reply letter comes back from a false prophet in Babylon now. Letter written, addressed to a priest over in Jerusalem, accusing that priest in Jerusalem of not dealing with Jeremiah as he was supposed to deal with Jeremiah. Referring in verse 26 to Jeremiah as a madman who's prophesying, the letter said that the priest was supposed to arrest and lock him up. Furthermore, verse 27 called for Jeremiah to be rebuked because in verse 28, their specific complaint was that Jeremiah had told the the exiles to settle in because their exile would be long-term, 70 years in particular. The false prophets, meanwhile, had predicted the exile was going to only be two years. Say they wanted the priest on duty over in Jerusalem to use his authority position to rebuke and silence Jeremiah. See it? Verse 29, this letter arrives to Jerusalem, and it's read out loud by the priest to Jeremiah. Then our last verses, 30 to 32, God replied. God addressed his reply to all the exiles over in Babylon, and now denouncing that false prophet by name. God listed the consequences of rejecting the word of the Lord, namely rejecting his kingship and disobedience to God is a breach of the covenant, so the curses of the covenant need to be applied. And just like our previous chapter, chapter 28, verse 16, if you want to glance over, when Hananiah was accused of uttering rebellion against the Lord, so also here in chapter 29, verse 32, the Lord said this other false prophet has spoken rebellion against the Lord. Same Crime listed out. And we know what happened to Hananiah from chapter 28. He was put to death by the Lord. And so that's how this chapter ends. He has also spoken rebellion against the Lord. It's strongly implied that this false prophet will receive the same punishment as the false prophet did at the end of the previous chapter, namely death at the hands of the Lord. We see how this all points us to Christ. When Christ has our sins upon himself, he too is put to death at the hands of the wrath of God our Father. A holy God demands judgment for sin. It's a message leaking out of Jeremiah. It's the message driving us to the cross. But yet there's a message of hope in it all. The message of hope to the exiles is judgment first, then restoration. It's not, you're going off into exile, done with you, wash hands of you. I'm going to make some new people. No, it's after 70 years, I'm bringing you home. There's hope here. The exiles, the ones apparently defeated through deportation, are the community from which the future Jerusalem will emerge. This is the same pathway for Christ himself. The one who's rejected, the one who's scandalized, 
and crucified, the one who has our sins placed upon him and beaten for us, became himself God's new way for new life. Paul writes of it this way, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the, discerning of the, of the discern, discernment of the discerning I will thwart. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1. You see, the Bible teaches us that we today follow Christ. Like those exiles, we also are exiles. New Testament Christian exiles on earth. It's clear I'm not making this up. I feel a need to prove it for a moment. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. It's the very first verse of Peter's first letter to the exiles, the Christians spread around in suffering. His introduction written to them in various places, telling them how God was blessing them. He goes on to write, verse Peter 1.17, conduct yourselves with the fear of God throughout the time of your exile. How could Peter write to them about their exile? Because it's similar. By knowing that they were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. And then in the next chapter, once more, Peter wrote to Christian exiles throughout the world, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, travelers, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You might be in Babylon... But behave like citizens of Jerusalem. You might be under the wicked Nebuchadnezzar, but behave like you're under Christ, the King of Kings. You might be in this world, but behave like citizens of heaven and the kingdom of God. Again, the idea that we're exiles or pilgrims or travelers through this world with our home ahead of us in heaven is a teaching that God has given us squarely and firmly and repeatedly in the New Testament. So that's our study all that's left is to give you four applications. Number one, we continue to put all of our hope in Christ crucified and risen. We see this hope throughout the Bible. Here, Jeremiah writes to one congregation gathered in Jerusalem. He writes to another congregation gathered in Babylon. It's like an Old Testament apostle writing to his congregations, one of them in exile and one of them home yet. To both congregations, he's calling them to hope. Later, a suffering and crying psalmist could write to his own soul and to all of our souls as we look over his shoulder and read it, communicating this same hope with this same God with these words, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Later, Christ himself came and spoke to his followers about hoping in him even when he would be arrested, put on trial, beaten, crucified, buried, and would rise again, hope in him. Similarly, his apostle Paul, sometimes himself in prison, his own exile, if you will, wrote to his congregations in Rome or Corinth or Philippi or Ephesus, telling them to put their hope in the Lord Jesus. How do Christians properly view our country? Even as we reflect on its birthday, Independence Day, what are our circumstances today, this year, right now, in our country as Christians? How does Jeremiah 29 shed light on it? We live in a society embattled 
competing worldviews. Our society, I'll just, maybe I'll speak for myself, it gets me down. I've struggled personally with discouragement about this country. I'm a veteran, a patriot, if you will, and yet I'm struggling with the community in which we live. These, these competing worldviews are powerfully discouraging. I was so encouraged to remind myself from this chapter this week about our perspective. We've been fighting discouragement, if I could speak for you. We thought of the overturning of this law regarding protecting life would encourage us, and it has encouraged us a lot, I believe. But the reaction has also left us powerfully discouraged about the hearts of our fellow citizens who are fiercely fighting for the ability to kill people. This chapter 29 reminds us of hope in Christ and his cross and his victory. The suffering in exile ends with restoration. All during the exile, the people maintained hope. That's us. That's me. Are you with me that this is our place of exile and our hope, our spiritual hope for the spiritual life of our fellow citizens is in Christ and Christ alone? That's the hope that we see in this chapter We see it also in the New Testament. Paul writes of it clearly in Romans 5, 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces what? Hope. Paul's writing the same things Jeremiah is writing about. The weight of concern we carry about a divided and crumbling society is to be bravely endured, and that is what produces stronger and stronger character in us. Stronger and stronger character in us produces hope. God is bringing us through our sufferings and we endure because Christ is risen from the dead and carrying us along by faith. God is making us to be the kind of people who will never give up, will never quit, will never stop. We become people of character, belonging to another kingdom. Why? Because of our hope in Christ. Just like those old exiles who were told to keep on looking for that one day of release from exile... So we are told to keep on looking for that one fine day when Christ will come and take us home. For July 4, I say, is a good day to be in our society. Not because things are going so swimmingly, but because our God is faithful to his promises, Old Testament and New, and as Christians, we're called to live in this dark place, shine the light, and keep our hope focused on Christ alone. So that's number one. Number two, don't check out. Don't give up. Could it be the example of the violence that we keep seeing in our country is still there from a lack of prayer? What would it take to drive us to prayer? Verse 7 says, Pray to the Lord on their behalf, for in their peace you will find peace. It's the word shalom, so I can translate it peace or welfare. Is it because Christians have given up praying that God would help us with the problem of violence? One lesson from this chapter is we don't withdraw from society altogether. God will have nothing of it for the exiles. You plug in, you marry, you plant gardens, you build families, generational families. Reminds us of what Christ taught us in Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The words seek and find don't allow us room to resign and do nothing. No, then you would start spiraling downward and complaining and grumbling and heading darker towards despair. Beware the slew of despond, to use an image from our children's Pilgrim's Progress study in a few weeks here in, in uh, Vacation Bible School. Our, our hero of the story, Pilgrim, and his traveling companion, quote, in quick order, both fell into the mire. 
the name of the marsh he slew was Despond. Here they wallowed for a time until they were totally covered with the slime and mud. Because of the burden on his back, Christian began to sink. I'm actually going to leave you with a cliffhanger there. You have to read this story for yourself. But I will quote how it ends from Scripture, Psalm 40, verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Our application point here is that as a Christian, you can't check out. You're called to continue to be a good citizen of our state and our nation. You're called, in fact, to be a model citizen, a good example of what citizens ought to be. A citizen who's informed, active, participating in the process, voting, serving, writing, speaking up. We as a church are not to withdraw into our own safe existence. We are to care enough to pray diligently and to speak to the issues ethically. Prayer reorients us until our perspectives and attitudes are corrected. And then with the Lord's word shedding light and his spirit propelling us forward, we're ready to work for our community's peace. Not as a political entity, please don't misunderstand. Not as a political community. The church is not a political lobbying force. The church is a spiritual entity, a spiritual community in which God feeds his people and refreshes us. We do not get involved as a church community in supporting a certain candidate, a certain campaign, a certain party, or a certain administration. We stop short of that as a church, whereas individuals, you can go there and must. Individuals can and must. The church must not. We represent the kingdom of God, pure and above all political agendas. We work to refresh and remind individual Christians of the eternal truths of God as it applies to their individual work as citizens because the church as church remains the house of prayer and the worship of Christ. The church is what prevents Christians from giving up on our country, which is my second application point. Don't check out. Christians don't check out ever. Third application point, pray. We're called to pray in this chapter for our city, our state, our nation. Need it be said to pray for blessing, not judgment? That's clear here also. Pray for blessing even as we're aware that they do stand under God's future judgment. All will face him. But here in chapter 29, Jeremiah urged the exiles to pray for Babylon. They were not going to be given a quick return from exile. They were going to spend, a lot of them, the rest of their lives in Babylon watching their children be born, maybe their grandchildren, for a total of 70 years. They were told, therefore, to pray for Babylon. That's actually very encouraging when you think about it. What it shows is that God had not forgotten them. He was not about to forsake them. He's not subservient to the power of Babylon. The reverse is true. Babylon is subservient to the power of the kingdom of God. That's the message that's ever so clear. And prayer reminds us of that. That's why we need to pray. Our God is one who puts us where we are. The exact address, exact family members, exact schooling history, training, current job. We have been sent by God to be in our exact circles. One of the reasons we've been sent here by God is to pray for that circle, for that community. Every circle you're in, you're called to pray for. Family, city, school, state, nation. And we don't pray down judgment. We pray down blessing. Yes, even blessing for those who've hurt us. 
those who've hurt our families, hurt our churches, hurt our causes, hurt our unborn, hurt our nation. We pray for our captors in the Old Testament. We pray for our enemies in the New Testament. Do you really think this is a stretch? I'll tell you this, it's uniquely Christian. How do we know this? Think of what Christ himself did. From the cross, while hanging there, we have what Christ prayed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. From a place called the skull, we learn from Luke 23, and from the hoisted position of the cross, being the recipient, the active recipient of a violent mob, from the scenario of being persecuted and receiving personal hurt and knowing it was going to cost him his life momentarily, Christ prayed down blessings on the people. It's uniquely Christian because it's from Christ. In Matthew 5, he taught, pray for those who persecute you. That's how we know what Christians pray. Pray to bless and never give up. We pray down blessings because God put us here to improve things. Verse 11, as we said, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for peace and not for evil to give you hope and a future. Christians never work to destroy and tear down. Christians don't just carp. Don't just sit and criticize. We always work to build things up and to restore. We pray for city, state, nation, for his blessings, even as we're aware that they in the, in the future will face God and his judgment. Our fourth and last application, support Christians who serve the public. We need Christian candidates. We need Christian campaign workers. We need Christian poll workers. We need Christian lawmakers and judges, representatives. We need Christians to run for mayor, city council, congressman, governor, president, vice president. We need salt and light in all those places. We need wisdom and leadership. We need service to the common good from the most powerful seats. We need Christians in law enforcement who will not abuse their powers. Christians who are going to be able to handle the difficult things we're asking law enforcement to do, who will not abandon their post, no matter how difficult it becomes. We need spirit-filled people with love and determination to serve the people of our state and nation. Listen, God sent Abraham so that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 12, 15, or 12, verse 3. Jesus came and became the Savior of the world, John 4, 42. And in Revelation 22, 2, the vision of the heavenly leaves of the tree of life is... The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We have the answer. People have to serve the public, and we need to support them in doing so. God has us here to be heaven's citizens. On assignment in exile here for a little while in order to bless and never stop asking God to bless this nation. Let's pray.